0: Welcome to the Two Wealth Show, a show that shares how you can create real wealth for you and your family. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Bogard, and my co-host is Elizabeth Sickles, a.k.a. Super E. I am a real estate note investor specializing in performing residential real estate debt. I find the deals, acquire them for my own portfolio, as well as educate investors while walking them through the process of owning a real estate note. My co-host, Super E, a real estate investor, specializing in short-term rentals and the management of them. She connects investors with short-term tenants and manages everything in between. Our show is sponsored by Brightpath Notes and Elizabeth Mayora. You can find out more information by visiting our websites at brightpathnotes.com and elizabethmayora.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Wealth Show. This is episode number seven. I'm Justin Bogard with Bright Path Notes, and my co-host is
1: Super E, Elizabeth Mayora with Elizabeth Mayora.
0: Welcome. Elizabeth, it is so great to see you again. I love how we can do this stuff online. I know I was thinking earlier today, Elizabeth, we used to actually record this kind of like a news reel, and we were in this really nice setting. We had these beautiful light setup with these high definition cameras and we look so cool. And then, and then, you know, COVID happened and we're just like, Justin, what, what are we going to do now? I'm just like, I think we're just going to have to do zoom or something like that. Right. So we've been doing that pretty much for the entire, um, second season. I would say we, I think we got about five, maybe six episodes in of, uh, we'll call regular, regular podcasting. And then we had to do this online thing. So I don't know. I think it's worked out pretty good, Elizabeth. What about you?
1: I do. I need a little bit different lighting to make it more professional. (laughs) But other than that, it works.
0: Yeah. It's... uh, I think it makes... Well, it makes travel easier, right? Because we don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to, you know, have time to and from and then setting up and breaking down all that equipment. It was uh, was a lot to do. So this turns out to be a lot more efficient for us, right? That's
1: true. It does. (laughs) Or it is, I should say.
0: Yeah. Elizabeth, as you probably realize, we've got a credit crunch going on that's continuing, continuing, continuing to crunch even more. All right. This is known um, even more prevalent, if you will, because Fannie Mae just came out with some information that says they're cutting back on buying some of these loans. Okay. So what does this mean? A GSE is a government-sponsored enterprise. Fannie Mae is one of them. Freddie Mac is another. Uh, Jenny Mae, you know, is, is another. And so, Their job, for those of you that are listening and watching, and Elizabeth knows this, is to buy these loans that the banks create. Okay. And why would you, why would a bank sell a loan? Well, they want to get liquidity, right, Elizabeth? Mm -hmm. So they create a loan, they charge fees for it, they charge, you know, for appraisals and loan origination fees and all the things like that. They may hold the paper. And they may hold the no- loan on that at their bank and service it for a few months and then sell it. But traditionally, they're probably going to sell it pretty quickly to Fannie or Freddie because their job is to buy these loans from the banks so that the banks can be have liquidity and they can go originate more loans. Because they do it in volume, guess what? They end up having the biggest buildings downtown. They're on every street corner. And the banks somehow make money through any economic time. So that's, that's the secret sauce right there is one of them. So Fannie Mae like I said before, has decided to cut back on buying some of this paper from banks. Now, not all paper, Elizabeth, but specifically the investment type property paper and the second home type paper. So this is like non-primary residence type of mortgage notes that are created. Mm-hmm. So they're doing this because of a credit crunch. They're starting to see that they need to have tighter restrictions on people because they're probably seeing the writing on the wall with inflation and people borrowing more money than they can afford to pay back. Mm -hmm. And so this is what happened in the 2006, 2005, 2007 timeframe where people were just handing out money left and right. You can get a half million dollar house and make $50,000 a year. I know that's probably an extreme example, but you get the idea, right, Elizabeth? That's right. So that's a problem, right? They probably can't afford it. And then we had foreclosures and then there was this after effect and you all remember more than likely what happened then and what was the aftermath of that. So the banks, when they sniff or they feel like there's some sort of problem like that, they start tightening their restrictions because they want to make sure the borrowers, somebody like me or Elizabeth or whoever, is going to be able to pay back that debt and be consistent about it, right? They don't want any problems. They don't want to deal with anybody missing their payment and being too high to debt to income ratio. So that is the story that came out and that's kind of what's happening. So Fannie Mae is one of the biggest ones, right? So you would imagine that the others are going to follow suit to some extent. So what I'm saying is when I'm reading this information, I see an opportunity and I see a little bit of a problem, right? The banks, if they continue to create these loans, they are going to have no one to buy them. Well, someone's probably going to buy them. It's just at what price, right? The banks will start writing them off on their books and they'll figure out at what price point do they want to get rid of it or do they want to keep it long-term and trying to work it out? More than likely, they'll probably sell it off. But Fannie and Freddie and those other GSEs, they really dictate exactly what the banks are going to do because the banks know like, this is my end client that I'm going to sell this to. What is it that they want? And I'm going to model exactly what they want. So I'm creating a product that I can deliver to them. And so that's what I see happening with that article.
1: So you mentioned Fr- um, Franny and Freddie, and then Freddie and Fanny. It's, it's
0: confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, did you say GSE?
0: GSEs, government sponsored enterprises.
1: Okay. And when that happens, so when they start selling those off, Justin, do you buy those as a note investor or who do they sell those to?
0: So they would be selling them to probably very large hedge funds, like let's just say Goldman Sachs or, you know, big Wall Street firms will probably start buying those. And we're talking about the big banks, like the, the big five, if you will, you know, the Bank of America, the Chase, you know, the, who, whoever, who are the big, the Wells Fargo, you know, all the big ones, those aren't loans that we as small time note investors can buy from because quite frankly, we're just, we're peanuts to them, right? We don't have billions of dollars backing us to buy their inventory. Now, when you get to the smaller branches or the regional banks or the small, you know, one, two to five uh, branch, excuse me, type of banks, then they'll have a conversation with us and we might be able to get in there and buy some loans from them. But traditionally, no, it's it's not going after to the big banks. It's going after to the smaller banks that are going to be suited for me.
1: Okay. Okay. Excellent. That's good to know. And <clears throat> what is the, excuse me, what is the good side of them in the note world?
0: The good side of buying that paper?
1: Mm-hmm. Of this happening.
0: Well, if, and of course, I don't have a crystal ball. I say this all the time. So if Fannie Mae's not going to buy that product from the bank, well, who do they have to sell it to? Well, someone's going to buy it, like I said before, but it's just not going to be at the price point that Fannie Mae would pay for it, right? Because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and those other GSEs, they're going to pay pretty much top dollar for these loans. Like we'll just say 97 cents in the dollar or, or some number up there, really high up there, right? But they're going to do it over a grand scale of, you know, thousands and billions of dollars worth of loans. Thousands of loans, but billions of dollars worth of unpaid balance. Right, so that's that's what their quandary is. So I I don't see them having an issue selling it. It's just who would they sell it to, and at what price point were they willing to buy it for? So the silver lining, I guess, as investors, is that inventory could come, and this is, and we're talking about non-owner occupied properties. So the second home is really a non-owner occupied property because it's more of a it's a second home, so they're not they don't live there full-time, right? It may be seasonal or they may rent it out like as an, as an Airbnb, or they may rent it out as a, as a true rental or a vacation rental or a seasonal rental. Uh, so those would be non-occupied. So those don't fall under certain rules and regulations. So true owner occupied homes, like the home that I live in, or that Elizabeth lives in, or that you live in, that's an owner occupied loan. And they have rules that have to follow the Dodd, Frank, and CFPB guidelines. So With them tightening the restrictions on those non-owner occupied type of loans, it means that they see an issue with potentially with borrowers and they want to make sure they have the cream of the crop type borrowers that are getting these loans from the banks.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Excuse me. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. People may have glossed over that if they read that, but I'm reading a little deeper into it to have a, a better conversation of what what do I think that means and what it could look like? This could not be a problem at all. They could change their mind and realize, you know, okay, well, we'll still make a deal with you, but we'll change our price point. But right now, when this article came out a few days ago, I'd say it was seven days ago, um, it just, they were alluding to the fact that you're just going to get tighter on that stuff. So I'm just assuming they're going to follow suit. Just like when COVID-19 hit back in February and March, Chase came out with an article that said, well, if you have a 720 credit score and 20% down payment, you can get a loan right maybe a month or two before that it was a 780 credit score and maybe not as big of a down payment we get you a loan a conventional loan so this is this is just what happens in these economic times
1: and i do i just want to you know just a special note to everybody we are educational only we're not um you know it's this is not um things that you need to do we're not giving advice this right. is, these are our own you know thoughts what we see you know from the industries that we work in and I say that because there are some different schools of thought about what can be done because we are the Two Wealth Show. So we're all about educating people on ways that you can invest your money. So one of the things, if you say, hey, you know what? I see that this as an opportunity for your investment strategies is to borrow money, right? So that you can take advantage of maybe being a private lender, doing hard money. There are different courses and depending on what state you live in, um, you'll need to have different license or different permits or whatever is required for that. But then also, you know, there could be, like Justin was saying, an opportunity on the note side um, of this. So at any rate, there's always, there's always an opportunity, there's always a plus and there's always a, a minus, but, you know, just make sure you really know, Hey, you know, is this something that that you would want to invest invest in? Excuse me.
0: Elizabeth, money today is cheaper than money tomorrow.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right.
0: Speaking of money and inflation, uh, what what else is going on? Let's talk about not specifically notes, but on the uh, let's call it the building side.
1: So this is really interesting. Um, most of you all know that I do teach once a month for Syria, the Central Indiana Real Estate Investors Group, and yep. last night or association that group, um, I had a special guest who's my insurance agent. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And one of the things that came up was that on your policies, whether it's your own, your personal property or your investment properties, there is something called that you're either insured for replacement value or market value. Okay, and those are two very, very different scenarios. And his advice to everybody is to do um, replacement cost. So, and you might be thinking, oh, but real estate's appreciating, it's going up, it's going up right now, but we don't know when that's going to end. And the other thing that's really important with replacement value is the fact that we've seen huge material costs increase on wood, on electrical components as well. And as you know, most of the time when prices go up, they're not going to come back down. So it's really important that you are insured for, again, my guy recommends the replacement value of your property. And then there's also something on policies called, I'm just going to look at my notes, extended coverage Um which could be, which also just goes into effect whenever you have some different amenities in your property and to make sure that additional things are covered. So you might think, you know, before whenever I would meet with my insurance guy, just be like, oh, I just need this, this, and this. No, 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 it's very, very important that you are covered both in your personal property and in investment properties.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't believe how much the prices of materials have changed because when we were remodeling our house over last summer, we were told that by the contractors is like, well, I inter- you may look at they have sticker shock on this price, but I'm telling you the materials that we're getting, we have no control over the price. And it's, it kind of is what it is. Like our labor is this cost, but our material went up by this factor because of you know this, that and the other and lumber was, was a big one mm-hmm. and treated lumber was, was even more uh, difficult to find as well. So we had to wait quite a bit for some of our materials to come in to finish the house. We remonted over the summer. So I can't imagine what it is now. Cause I'm sure it spiked a lot higher than what it was over the summer. Or, or I'm sure the material won't, it's probably not as short. Is, is there a shortage of material as well? And the prices are going up or are prices are just going up.
1: So it depends on what you're going for. Okay. Yes. And I'm sure the area depends also as well. So I know just, um, Three, three lots down from where I live personally, they're building a brand new house and there was a lot of lumber (laughs) delivered. Um, You know, I don't know if there was a delay in that, but there was a significant amount. But at one time we did have as well, um, we had some electrical because my electrician was here to do some work and he was actually starting to save um, some items just to make sure that he had them for, for customers.
0: Wow. I mean that's that's a good thought, right? That's good good heads up on, on that that person's part.
1: And absolutely. And you know, just one of the things we've talked before about prepping for if there's a natural disaster or something, one of the things they also say, just because we're talking about building here, is to also have screws, nails, um, mm. plenty of those on hand as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the fix and flip Real estate investors are struggling right now because of this material shortage, because of the inventory shortage. Like, are they, is it becoming even more challenging for them?
1: I don't think so because they're making the money up on whenever they sell it. So, so actually I should say that while their costs are going up, the customer right now is willing to pay that increased money for the property because we have this property shortage.
0: Okay. Well, that's good.
1: Mm Mm-hmm it's great. We actually, we did a construction clean, um, a few weeks ago and, um, my client bought the property for $130,000. I don't know what he put into it. Not, not a lot of money, um, but he was selling it for $260,000 in five months. And you know, that, that's how you make money. (laughs) Um, you know, and part of that is knowing the right areas to buy what are the ARVs so the after repair value of the property's mm-hmm. doing your research or having people that you trust um, that can give you accurate value so you can invest for whatever um you know needs for whatever your your reasons are.
0: Are you involved with a lot of appraisals from traditional appraisers with properties nowadays? not
1: I am not no.
0: I was wondering if the, the, maybe it's a real estate agent that we should ask this question to is, are they just going with the purchase price and giving it its value? Or are they truly, because it seems like if values keep going up in certain areas, how are they using their subject property against the comparables? Or are they just going with the purchase price that's on the contract or higher?
1: Mm-hmm. So I do have to say I am a real estate agent, mm-hmm. and the re- even though that's not what I I do, right? But I'm right. just making that clarification, Justin, because in the state of Indiana, if you manage for other people, you are supposed to, by law, have your real estate license. Okay. And I'm making kind of a point of this also because we had the attorney attorney general for the state of Indiana, Todd Rakita at our Syria meeting. And that was actually a big item that came up. And he's finally going to go after people that are managing properties that are not licensed real estate agents. And the reason, one of the reasons that this is a problem is there are certain protocols that we have to follow as a real estate agent, especially whenever we're leasing properties. I can't ask people I can't ask them hardly anything. How many kids do you have? I would never ask that question. All I can say is how many adults? And I can say, okay, this property is limited to two people per bedroom. Um, So there's a lot of things that you have to be really cognizant of when you're an agent. So and this, you know, just kind of ties back also to we talk a lot about now, especially being involved with your legislators, your local legislators as well. And because we had that meeting and we brought it to his attention that, hey, this is a huge problem in real estate that he's going after it.
0: Wow. So So, let me ask you a question, because maybe uh, I don't understand exactly what that means. And Mm -hmm. so my question to you is, if you are a landlord and have one property, are you technically managing it? And then if you're managing it, are you having to get your real estate license? Is that what you're saying?
1: So if you manage for other people, you don't have to have a license for your own personal properties.
0: Okay. So like if if your company is a management company to manage properties that other people own and have tenants in, okay, Mm -hmm. now I understand you.
1: Yes. So for me, if I managed only my own properties, mm-hmm. anybody that was on my team working for me, we don't have to have them because they're okay. my my properties.
0: Yeah. Okay. So well, that makes sense. Well, good. Mm-hmm.
1: And what's interesting too, Justin, and for all of our listeners, is that when the somebody raised the question, and um, Attorney General Rakita had his right hand man, um, his first name is Derek. There, and he said, "Hey, is this is this actually a problem?" And Derek said, um, we've had over a hundred calls this week about it.
0: Are you, are you, do you remember what the, the question was?
1: Yes. Is, um, as far as is, um, having people that are basically, po- well, people that are managing properties that do not have their realtor's license. Okay. It-
0: wow. So just that week they had just a hundred phone calls on it.
1: Correct. Saying, wow. you know, either reporting people that are, you know, that are acting as real to- or, you know, as real estate, um, you know, people um, yeah. managing other people's properties.
0: Wow. Well, good for us getting a change going then.
1: Yes. Because, you know, I paid the money I pay. It's about um, somewhere around fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year for me just to have my license. So that's a that's a pretty yeah. significant you know, cost business cost.
0: Absolutely, it is. Yeah.
1: You know, so you know, I took the time to take the classes and pay yeah. for the classes, and um, so, so yeah, so it's 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 important know the laws and regulations of your state.
0: Yeah, it is important, and it's great to have a local group like where we're at, Cyria, and then our in state Ria as well, mm-hmm. to have folks like you and and bring in the attorney general and to talk about this stuff. That's great. Otherwise I honestly wouldn't know about the state regulations unless I heard of somebody that got in trouble for something, or unless it was an article that came out that was in some sort of my newsfeed. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's great to have. So if you do have a local real estate group or real estate club in you know, close to you, I encourage you to go visit it.
1: Absolutely, and if you don't, then go ahead and start start your own. Because there are plenty of real estate yeah. investors that you know need help and want to not only need help, but they want to congregate and network with yeah. other real estate investors, so we can just continue to get better.
0: And otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to have our st- Indiana State RIA if we didn't have smaller Rias around our state to get together to realize, hey, we have a common problem let's pull our resources and our knowledge together to see if we can come up with solutions. And lo and behold, we've, we've been able to make some changes and some headway for Indiana specifically, right?
1: Huge, huge, huge headway. Two bills passed in three years, which is almost unheard of. So
0: two bills passed in three years. Very nice. And so speaking of Indiana state RIA. Um, I believe coming up very soon when this episode airs, it's probably going to be a couple days. But it's April fifteenth and seventeenth, fifteenth
1: mm-hmm. through the seventeenth. Yes, fifteenth
0: through the seventeenth. It's going to be partly on Zoom and partly in person. Mm-hmm. And where can we go to get uh, tickets for that?
1: Um, Indiana State Ria, so R I wait real estate R E I A. Thank you. <laughs> Dot .org um, yeah we'd love to have you. Um, like Justin said, it'll be both zoom and in person so whatever you feel comfortable with we do have a VIP dinner on that Friday night as well with a meet and greet with Trey Hollingsworth who is a representative. he's us um congressional representative and we have some other lawmakers coming as well. So whether you live in Indiana, but if you invest in Indiana, we would absolutely love to have you and it's important that your voice is there and your voice is heard.
0: Absolutely. Elizabeth, I think that's a great way to end today's episode. So this was episode 7. If you're if you're listening to this on a podcast, remember that we also video cast this on the Bright Path Notes YouTube channel and Elizabeth Mayor's YouTube channel as well. So I'm Justin Bogart with Bright Path Notes.
1: And I'm Elizabeth with Elizabeth Mayora.
0: All right. See you next time, guys. Thank you. The Two Wealth Show is produced by Justin Bogart and Super E, sponsored by Bright Path Notes and Elizabeth Mayora. Thanks for listening and watching for our show.